Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here. I just want to remind you that if you love the podcast, the best way to support the show is by leaving it a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Actually, Spotify just started accepting ratings. So go ahead and rate it on there and tell all your friends to do it because it's super simple. It takes literally one second. I mean, maybe four seconds, but it's really quick. And uh, another great way to support the show is by sharing it with a friend or posting about it on social media. If you do post it on social media, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. And remember to tag the guests too, so they can also share. Okay, now let's get to the show. What are your values? What do you value most in life? What values do you look for in others? You've probably been asked these questions before, and to be honest, they're more confusing than they initially sound. I mean, honestly, what are values? Today's guest will share the exact questions you need to ask to find out what your values are. Questions like, how do I fill my space? How do I spend most of my time? What inspires me? He also shares incredible tools to balance out extreme thinking and emotions so you can find authenticity in everything you do. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, spirituality, and everything it means to be a human and become more human. Today's guest is Dr. John Demartini. Dr. Demartini is a researcher, best-selling author, international educator, and public speaker on the topic of human behavior. He founded the Demartini Institute and has trademarked certain methodologies in human development, the primary two being the Demartini Method and the Demartini Value Determination Process, which is so helpful and we'll get into today. He's also authored nine internationally best-selling books, including The Breakthrough Experience, Inspired Destiny, Riches Within, and Stress to Success. I wanted to have Dr. Demartini on the show because he talks about conquering so many of the things that stand in the way of our confidence and the creative process. With his values determinations process, you can apply what you specifically learn about your own values to help heal your shame talk, traumas, and fears that stop you from loving yourself and aligning your life, relationships, and career. It also just helps you prioritize your time because you see, okay, well, if that doesn't fit into my value system, then I don't need to go for that. In addition to that, he has some really helpful, tangible tools to stop using extreme thinking and emotion, which is one of the things that I struggle with the most. And He has some far out stories to illustrate that, but they really are effective. And I do want to tell you, you know, there's some things that Dr. Demartini says that might be a little controversial at times or a little far out. So even if you don't agree with everything he says or you find it triggering at first, I encourage you to stay open minded because he has such incredible tools on how to get to some middle ground, find your values and really be of best service to the world and to yourself. So there's just so many amazing takeaways in this episode. I think there's tremendous value, and I'm excited for you to hear it, and let me know what you think. All right, now here he is, Dr. Demartini. Dr. Demartini, thank you so much for being on the show. I am honored to have you here. You have an incredible story. 
And you're coming to me live from a boat. So I was telling you before we went live, this is the first ever interview I've done with somebody who is at sea. And this is exciting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> On short notice, we manifested it. We manifested it. Yes, we're already in such great shape. Speaking of manifesting, you have manifested and created an incredible life for yourself career where you teach all around the world and help millions. But I know that you had a very difficult beginning of your life, really right up until you were 17 years old. And I'm wondering if you could take me through some of that story, like from your childhood to having that near-death experience at 17. How did you get there? Um, I was born in Houston, Texas, 1954. So I'm going on 68. And I had my arm and leg turned in, in the positioning, I guess, in the womb. And for some reason, when I was about a year and a half old, I couldn't walk. So I had to put on braces from, from the mid uh, humerus all the way down to the fingers and also above the knee down to the foot. I also found out that I had speech impediment. I had to use strings and buttons in my mouth, all these exercises. I remember when I was a kid, I begged my dad to get out of the braces by four. Mm. And I made a promise to keep my arm and leg straight if I, if I got out. And so I started running because when you've been constrained, you want to run. So I guess I've been on the run all my life. And when I turned five and got into kindergarten class, my kindergarten teacher said, you know, you're a boy. You're to draw army and cars and war with the boys. And I kept wanting to be with the girls. I'm an Italian guy. I like the girls. Hey, Paisan. Paisan. <laughs> I wanted to hang out with the girls and draw, you know, trees and things. And she says, you're not a girl. If you're not going to play with the boys, you're going to play with yourself in the middle of the room. So I was sort of destined for the middle path, I think. When I got to first grade, my first grade teacher found out that I had difficulties reading. I went from normal reading to remedial reading to eventually wearing a dunce cap. They actually made you do that? Yeah, we had to, me and Daryl Dalrymple, I always wondered what happened to him. I haven't been able to find him online, but we had to wear a dunce cap and face the window until we decided we were going to read. That didn't work. So eventually the teacher asked my parents to come to the school and said, look, your son has got definitely learning problems, speaking problems. Uh, I don't think he's going to very read or write. I don't think he's going to communicate effectively. I don't think he's going to go very far in life or amount to much. But he likes to run because I would run everywhere because I got out of the brace. I just wanted to run, prove my dad I could run. And she said, put him in sports. And I took up surfing at nine when I was in Texas, since Texas wasn't the surf capital, you had to have a hurricane to surf. Wow. So um, I ended up getting through school with the help of the smartest kids. So I had to ask them questions. Well, what did that, what did your reading tell you? What did you get out of it? You know, I just kept asking questions sort of thing. And I made it through elementary school, sort of asking the smartest girls and the smartest boys in the class. And if they talked to me, I could kind of get it. But reading it was the problem. And writing, I wrote backwards. My parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, which is a small town right outside the city in a low socioeconomic area. And there were no smart kids there to ask questions to. And I ended up failing and dropping out of school. I left home when I was 13. I uh, lived in a park. I lived in a bowling alley. I lived in a diner, back of the diner, lived at friends' houses. Eventually, I said, I need to go to the beach. It's better to hang out at the beach like this. And surfing became my thing. So what caused you to run away from home at 13? What was the inciting incident of that? Well, there was no, uh, (laughs) 
Well, my dad and I were playing in a barn at our, our place in the country. I'm playing pool and we were getting ready to finish. And I said, well, I'm going into town. I need to get cleaned up. I'm going into town. He says, no, you've been, you've been going into town enough this week. You need to stay home tonight. Well, I didn't want to tell him that I had a buddy there whose parents were out of town and we had two girls that were going to go and meet at this house and we were going to make out, you know, those days when you're 13, you make out and you kiss for like two hours. Yeah. And, uh, my dad said, well, no, you stay home tonight. And I said, no, I'm not going to pass this deal up. And I said, no, I'm going into town. He says, no, you stay, you stay home. Now. No, I'm going to town. He said, he said, well, if you go into town, you don't come back. You're showing up that you're going to make decisions as a man. You're going to go on your way. He was just trying to do a dad thing. You know, he wasn't. So I packed up my bags. And I said, because I was determined I was going to go and see that girl. Wow. And, and you got to realize I didn't have learning. I had learning problems. So my dad trained me street smart and trained me on how to go and get jobs and work. And he charged me seven fifty dollars a week to live at the house for food, clothing, and rent. And I had to go around the neighborhood and do landscaping and yards and all kinds of things because he wanted me to prepare for the real world out there. Because if I wasn't going to do it in school, I got to be prepared for real world. So I was capable of surviving out there. And my dad was testing me. I don't think he really thought I was going to do it, but see, he wanted to go to California and never made it to California in his life. Mm. And I told him I was going to California. I think he was living by Kersey. He was like, go. So I don't, it wasn't a runaway because of the parents. I had magnificent parents. They were amazing parents. I didn't run away from, because of their anything, you know, I just, I was a boy with a dream and I wanted to be able to do it on my own. And I was pretty autonomous. And I figured out how to survive. And so I'm, I'm, I have no uh, qualms about that. I'm, I, there's nothing back there I wish would have done different. There's nothing I'm regretful for. There's nothing I need to hide. There's something I'm grateful for there. That's beautiful to hear. Yeah, it just wasn't clear because most of the time when people run away, they run away because they're running from something, not towards something. Yeah, I was running towards some surf. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that at that age, you already had that in you, even though you had been basically bullied by all the non-parent adults in your life. Yeah. At 14, I decided I want to go to California and then eventually make it to Hawaii. So at 14, I, I hitchhiked from Houston, Texas to California. And a great adventure. Met some amazing people. Met Howard Hughes in El Paso, Texas. He was doing a natural gas deal there. I happened to run into him on the streets and he took me into a library and told me some things about reading and learning how to read and be intelligent someday. Met Timothy Leary on the way there and stayed at his ranch for a few hours. And then I made it to California. And Huntington Beach is where I hung out. I lived in the back of a, a Golden Bear, which is a club where they had Buddy Miles and B.B. King and all these jazz people and people playing. So I, they became like parent figures. Mm. And at 15, I made it over to Hawaii. I panhandled enough money to be able to fly to Hawaii. It was 86 bucks in those days. Wow. And I, I lived under a bridge first, then in a park bench, then in a bathroom when it rained, and then an abandoned car and kept social climbing. And um, rode big waves, rode bigger and bigger and bigger waves and got in some surf movies and surf ma magazines and surf books and stuff. And then one day I almost died. I was unconscious. I ended up unconscious for three and a half days. And luckily, somebody took me to where I was in the tent. I guess people knew there's not that many surfers there. They kind of knew where it was. They knew where my tent was in the jungle. 
and uh, three and a half days later, I was awoken in my tent facing down and, and a lady found me in there and took me to a health food store to get me some food. And um, there, there was a, uh, uh, on the door, a little announcement, Paul C. Bragg lecturing at a yoga class. And this guy at the health food store said, man, you're spastic. You need to take a yoga class. And so I went to this class and I never went to classes. I was, school wasn't my thing. I didn't read. I never read a book till I was 18 from cover to cover. And uh, that night, Paul C. Bragg lectured. In one hour, that man changed my life. He, he said that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. And that what you think about, what you visualize, what you talk to yourself about, the way you feel about yourself, and what actions you take determine your path and the destiny. And that was the first night in my life that anybody kind of talked to me that way. Mm. And that was the first night I thought, maybe someday I could become intelligent. I could learn to read. You know, when you did have this transformation, how did you not take that little kid within you who was wearing the dunce hat with you into this next phase of your life? Because I think a lot of people struggle to get away from that early childhood conditioning and early shame talk that gets into our head. How did you shed that shame talk as you transcended to this next level? It happened in a special day. When I met Paul Bragg, my life shifted. I went out and went to a health food store and bought my first book, Chico's Organic Gardening in You and Natural Living. And then I decided in a meditation, because I started meditating, because Paul Bragg taught us meditation. I started meditating, and, and there's a little voice there that said, it's time to see your parents, time to go home. Mm. So I flew to LA, hitchhiked back to Texas. When I got to Texas or Richmond, my, my dad and sister drove right past me, didn't recognize me because I had long hair and a beard. I come home and my mom was there cooking prunes and I walked in the door and she's, oh my God, she finally looked and she goes, is that you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh my God. She said, and they taught me that weekend had taken a GED test, a general education degree, because he said that way, if you ever need a job with that certificate, it's like a high school degree. Mm -hmm. So I went to the University of Houston, sat in this room for a day and took this test. And Paul Bragg gave me a statement because I told him I didn't know how to read, but I had a dream that night when I was with him to, to learn how to read and become a teacher. And he said, well, every single day, say to yourself that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom and it'll shift the trajectory of your thinking. So I started saying that every day. I never missed a day in 50 years, almost 49 years and a half. Wow. That goes to my head every morning. Can you say that statement again so we can say it too? What was it? Yeah, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. I had to ask my mom what a genius was. When I, when I got back to Houston, I, I asked her, what is a genius? She says, well, people like Albert Einstein and Da Vinci. I later defined a genius as one who listens to their inner voice and inner vision and obeys and doesn't let the outer world dictate their destiny. So I took this GED test and I closed my eyes on most of the question because some of them I didn't even understand. Closed my eyes and I said, I'm a genius. And I applied my wisdom and I took the pencil and I just dotted in intuitively a, a mark. <laughs> it was miraculous. It was like, I thought, man, there's some sort of super connecting power that this guy gave me. You know, I'm connected to something. I'm now a high school degree kid. Well, then they, they said, well, let's go take another test to get into college. It's a three-day test, an ACT or something test. And I did the same thing, I guessed. And I passed. Wow. I didn't, I didn't even read half the questions. I just went with this intuition. Almost like there was a, there was some sort of, I felt it was some sort of destiny factor. I don't know how to describe it, except I felt destined that, I, that this is my step in life. And I passed. 
And I started to go to college, this junior college. You couldn't get into main college, but I could start this little junior college. And I took English and history. And that when I got the test results, the first two weeks in, I got a test. And I thought the miracle was going to happen again. And when I got it, I looked down the thing and I thought my name would be up the top, Martini, A, B, C, D. And I kept looking for my name on the test scores and it wasn't on there. And it was way at the bottom. Everybody was above 70, 75. I got a 27. When I saw that, I ran to my car and I cried. And then in my head, I heard the first grade teacher. Your son will never read. He'll never write. He'll never communicate. Never mount thing. Never go very far in life. And boy, it came right back. And then I was questioning myself. I thought, I've been gullible. This is a delusion. I was really in mixed motion. But by the time I got home, I curled up in a fetal position under this Bible stand that my mom had, this really antique Bible stand. And I just curled up and my mom came home and she saw me there. She was shopping. She said, son, what happened? I said, mom, I blew it. I needed a 72 to pass and I got a 27. I, I guess I don't have what it takes. I don't, I don't think I'll ever read or write or communicate around it. I just repeated what the first grade teacher said. And she said something that was pivotal. It was epic. And only a mom could say it. She reached and put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream, whether you go and ride giant waves again in the North Shore or return to the streets, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do, boy. And when she said that, my hand went into a fist, determination. And I looked up and I saw the vision the night that I was with Paul Bragg. I saw a vision of me standing in front of a million people. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me, not even myself. I got up and I hugged my mom. I went into my room. I got a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary out. And I got this dictionary and I made a commitment to myself that I was going to read and memorize properly 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And my mom would test me on 30 words a day. I'd read them, write them over and over again, 20 times, say them, pronounce them, spell them properly, use them in a sentence, try to get meaning out of it. And my vocabulary started growing. And eventually I started passing school. And then I never stopped because if you do 30 words a day, at the end of two years, think of the numbers. And I literally, by the time the first year was up, I was nearly at the top of the school. Wow. It was amazing, the transformation. I went to my mom, it's it my birthday, going on 19. And she said, son, what do you want for your birthday for Christmas? I said, mom, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth from the greatest minds who ever lived. And she said, you sure you don't want a t-shirt? <laughs> I said, no, mom. I said, I want the greatest ideas greatest teachings that are known and she said well let me see what i can do and she contacted her brother uncle ralph and he uh, was a professor at mit he was a physicist and chemist and he sent as a gift on a flatbed truck to our home two giant six by six by six foot wooden crates with thousands of books a massive library and i remember putting them on the ground they put them on the ground and i took a crowbar to open the whole thing up and just carried 15 books at a time in my room and surrounded my room. And man, I went to work. 
And I just started reading 18 to 20 hours a day to try to grow my vocabulary and to try to learn and catch up and excel. And slowly but surely, people started asking me questions. Mm. That was the most amazing thing for somebody to ask me. And I started teaching. And my teaching went from there to eventually when I went to the University of Houston, I'd have 100, 125, 150, 400 people every day under the trees asking questions. And my speaking just kept growing until it became 163 countries now. That's amazing. I want to go back to that moment that your mom said something that changed your life. There's a lot of people out there right now that haven't been able to get rid of that shame talk. And maybe they do have people like your mom who believe in them and will love them no matter what. Whatever they produce, they're still going to be loved. I feel like that in a lot of ways. My parents believe in me more than anyone. But I've never been able to like completely alleviate my shame talk. How did you let that power of love and belief overtake any sort of shame or internalized trauma from your childhood? What is your advice for people who are still struggling with that? Well, shame is an assumption that whatever you've done has initiated in somebody else the perceptions of more pain and pleasure, more loss and gain, more disadvantage and advantage in some way. And that's not the case. That's an assumption. So I ask people who are feeling shamed about something because they're presupposing that there's drawbacks to whatever they did to ask, what are the upsides? How did you serve those people? How did you contribute? And at first they go, well, I didn't. That's why I'm feeling shame. I said, no, no, no. I didn't ask about how you didn't. I asked, how did you serve them? Because we've all had situations in our life that we think are terrible. You know, challenges are terrible. But a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and go, thank you. Yeah. So why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process when you can get the wisdom of the ages without it by asking questions? A quarter of our life is based on quite the questions we ask. So I ask people, and I, I help people clear shame and baggage like that every single week in my program, The Breakthrough Experience. Every week, people come in there with baggage. And a baggage is simply unconsciousness of the upsides to things they thought were somehow negative to them or negative to somebody else. And there's never an event that's polarized unless you have a narrow, subjectively biased mind. It's always got two sides. So I ask them, what's the benefit? And when they actually look and not make up things, not fake things, but actually look on how it catalyzed and how it opened up doors and what role did they play in, in initiating this, and they get enough benefits. Once the benefits equal the drawbacks, the shame is just melted away, dissolved. So there's, there's no reason to carry around anything in your life except thank you, I love you to yourself. There's, there's no reason. I mean, I, I took, I, can I share a story? I mean, this is an amazing story. Yeah. The guy that was involved in the Phillips 66 explosion many years ago where 33 people died in a, in a refinery explosion in Houston, Texas, the psychiatrist uh, sent that individual to my breakthrough experience to try to help him. He was in a catatonic stare. It was no conversation, no speech, just catatonic stare. And they brought him in and they sat him in the room. And while people were working on projects and issues and breaking through resentments and fears and guilts and infatuations and grief and all kinds of things, we were helping him through. I sat there and I go, okay, if this guy shut down because of that, he must be, they blamed him worldwide. He became the scapegoat worldwide as all those people died. And the truth is, it was an O-ring that wasn't repaired and wasn't scheduled to be recycled. So he didn't do anything, but they blamed him. They needed a scapegoat. 
And he couldn't handle that. I got this idea. Let me go over to him and just start making a list of all the blessings and benefits that came out of that explosion. Because that changed the standard around the world in all refineries and saved massive numbers of lives. The 33 did die. The massive lives have been changed and transformed. There's been less explosions, less injuries, everything else because of that. The standards went up. And so I sat down and wrote down a bunch of those. And then I went and sat with him. And I said, I want to thank you for this and this and this and this. And in case you didn't know, you made a contribution in this worldwide and this. Whatever I could remember of the benefits that came out of that. I came up with like 79 benefits to him. And a tear came out of his eye. Mm. And I said, all right, I'm on track. And I gathered the entire room around him because they were watching me work with him. And they gathered the whole room around him. I said, everything you can think of, of what you know of the benefits that came out of the Philip 66 explosion, start sharing them. And he got surrounded by 48 people thanking him for all these different things until he started crying and he fell over and got on a kind of a fetal position on the ground and just sobbed snot, drool, tears. Everybody was there for him. And we're just thanking him to counterbalance how he felt the shame and the guilt for his actions. It really wasn't his. But the pressure of that, just he shut down because he couldn't handle it anymore coming in. That was what happened to him. He came out of it that day, came back into function, and eventually went back to work. So the mind will do whatever it can to dissociate from something that's, you know, traumatizing in the perception, Mm -hmm. but it's all perception. And if you go and balance up that perception and ask new questions and help people see the other side of the equation and balance the equation, you liberate people from the bondage of those shames or guilts or resentments or whatever it may be, because there is nothing that goes on in your life that you can't use to great advantage. Nothing. Yeah. And speaking of that, like one of the things you talk about is the opportunities in a crisis. Like there's a plethora of crises worldwide and personally that people are experiencing right now. What are the opportunities of crisis? Well, each individual is is, uh, unique in what those are. When, When COVID hit March 18th or 20th last two years ago, I sent out an email across the world to send in the blessings, the benefits that you're getting. 17,000 blessings. I'm now at home. I get to know my kids. I'm learning how to do technology and Zoom and things. I'm now figuring out a new, more efficient way of building my business. I'm reaching and contacting and contact with people that I haven't been in contact for years. Uh, I'm now all of a sudden able to work out and exercise. I'm not having to drive. I'm not having to pollute. I'm, I'm now either here at home for dinner I mean, the the benefits started coming up left and right. And the people who balanced that equation took on COVID and became resilient, adaptable. A balanced mind is resilient, adaptable. A perfectly neutral and balanced mind doesn't feel the loss of things you infatuate with and doesn't feel the gain of things you resent. Mm. You're just able to adapt and be resilient. But when somebody is holding on to a fantasy of how it used to be and life's not matching the fantasy or how it should be or how it has to be, and they're not actually appreciating what's actually occurring and seeing how it's resourcefully helping them fulfill what's meaningful to them. 
they're going to be comparing their life to a fantasy instead of actually grounding it, finding out how it's all on the way. There's nothing that occurs in life that's not on the way if you ask the right questions and hold yourself accountable to find them. So that's why I just sent that out. I got tons of those. Yeah. And how do you advise people who maybe don't have as much adaptability? Like, how can they start increasing that in their lives? Stop the story of playing a victim and find out resourcefully how it serves you. Don't come with the idea, I can't find it, I don't know. I mean, just stop looking. There's nothing the mortal body can experience that the mortal soul can't love and use to its advantage. So I've seen people with every imaginable thing in my Breakthrough Experience program. I've seen people, I mean, unbelievable stuff. Can't even, hardly even describe it on here. We can be victims of history or masters of destiny. It's based on the questions we do and what we decide and how we act upon. We have control over perceptions, decisions, and actions. We don't have control of the world outside. We have control of our perception of that world, what we decide to do, and how we act from it. And so having command over your perceptions is one of the most powerful things you've got in your life. Why William James said the greatest discovery of our generation is that human beings can alter their lives by alternate perceptions and attitudes and mind. And that's what I found, too. We have the ability to take anything that's happened to us to turn to opportunity. I had a gentleman who was driving down the highway in Africa. He's a wealthy guy, has a big company. They all recognized him. Four cars came around either side of him, front, back, side to side, stopped in the freeway, banged out his his, uh, windows with guns and took him out, put a thing over his head, stuck him in in the back of a boot, what he called a trunk, I think. Yeah. And put him in there. And six hours later, he's he's put in this barn and they're interrogating and beating him and stuff and demanding millions of dollars and things. And for weeks, five to six weeks, he was not at his family, nothing like that. And he finally ended up getting them the money and they got it. They got set free. And he was in shock. His family was in shock. It was all over the news. It's a major thing. And they contacted me and asked me, you know, how do you transform this? And I said, no problem. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Go to the moment when you're actually put in the boot. You know, this thing's happening. It all happened in seconds. In that moment, your mind will automatically dissociate and create an opposite pole of perception to whatever you're perceiving. If you're in darkness, you'll perceive light. And he goes, wow, that's interesting. I did see my entire family with my arms around him in a field in the sunshine at that very moment. I said, great. Your mind will automatically create a counterbalancing system as a survival process. And so at that moment, you're in torture, but you're also in ecstasy. And when I did it, I asked him, and what's the benefit of this whole thing? At first, he couldn't see any. And then he realized, wait a minute. My wife was upset because I was never home. I was working because I had a massive company, and I, I, it was all dependent on me. When I was gone for five or six weeks, everybody that I was pushing and say, take command, take command, took command. And we've had an increase in business when I was gone. My business flourished and they don't depend on me. And all my delegations are now being in operation and I'm now being with my family and I have no way am I gonna be disconnected from my family again. That was, this catalyst gave me my family back. I'm now lost weight. I had to eat, I didn't get to eat. I've now kept my weight down. I've got a better health routine. I'm now with my family. I'm taking time. I'm being creative. I'm delegating. I'm focusing on this. I'm thinking about what I want to do philanthropically. My whole persona changed. And how did it help your children? They became more resourceful. They got closer to mommy. They decided that they're going to help mommy. They became more independent. And how did it help your wife? 
she said, well, she had to go in there and take on some of the commands too. And she was all of a sudden was over babying the children. And now they're more independent. She's more independent. They're more empowered. And now I'm more, he's more family oriented as she became more independent. And we started listing all the benefits until he just sobbed. And he goes, this isn't even a trauma now. Mm. I said, it's perception. There's a hidden order in the apparent chaos. And taking the time to not stop until you see it liberates people from years of subconsciously stored baggage that you want to run the story. And, and so I stop people in their story. They want to run their story to be heard. Stop the story. Let's get resourceful. Let's find how, how we can use it to our advantage. And let's get on with life. That's what I say. So I'm curious then, because like there's this whole mode in the world right now of people being like, don't engage in toxic positivity. Because some of this does feel like I'm a very optimistic person. And I think these things are wonderful. But some of this does feel like you're kind of like bypassing the traumatic event. No, 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 no. I'm, this is not positive thinking because I'm also working with people that are infatuated with fantasies and I got to find the downsides. Ah, I'm about balancing the equation. I'm not positive. Got thinking. it. I actually debunk positive thinking. It's fantasy. It's, it's actually causing the fantasies. I'm not a positive thinker by any means, but when somebody is perceiving only negative, they need the upsides. When somebody comes to me and said, I'm infatuated with this person, I'm about to sacrifice my millions of dollars because this is my soulmate. I'm going to sit down and go, what's the drawback? What's the ah, downside? Okay. Wake up, you know, you're under delusions. So I'm not into positive thinking. I, I debunked that. I've been against that 37 years because it sets up fantasies and sets up dopamine rushes. It makes nightmares out of life because they're not grounded in objective reality. But when they're seeing only downsides, that's not objective. Right. That's a subjective bias because of an amygdala response from the perception of trauma because you're comparing that reality to the fantasy about how your life is supposed to be. Ah. I get them grounded, find out that. And if this had not happened, what would be the drawback? I asked that question too. I would have continued to do it. I would have probably had a heart attack. I'd have been hypertensive. I would not have learned to eat well. I would have not been known my kids. Da, 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 da. I, I go to both sides and bring that back into balance. Okay. Thank you for asking. No, me. that makes total sense because I think you're absolutely right. And and here's, I really need to study your stuff because my tendency, and I think a lot of people who end up being in some sort of creative fields, tendency is to live in the extremes, right? It's very rarely in the gray area. It's either like, this is the most amazing thing in the world or it's the worst thing in the world. I'm so happy. I'm so depressed. But like, Neither are ever really true. <laughs> no, the, anytime you, anytime you're infatuated with something, you're conscious of the upside and unconscious of the downside. Right. Anytime you're resentful to something, you're conscious of the downside and unconscious of the upside. And as long as you do, your amygdala is going to run you. You're going to have an impulse for dopamine, and you're going to have an instinct with, you know, norepinephrine and stuff. You're going to, you're going to avoid and seek. And the world extrinsically is going to run your life. You're not going to run your life. The world out there and all the misperceptions you have about it's going to keep running you. And anything that reminds you of those associations is going to create an anxiety response or a fantasy response and hook you again and cause anxiety. Man, that's not how to live their life. If you're not living in your executive center and not having some sort of foresight and seeing and mitigating the risks and going after real objectives in life and pursuing fantasies, your life's going to be a nightmare. I always say that the, as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable, one side of a magnet. And the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable, the other side of the magnet, is a source of human suffering. Ungoverned, uncontrolled, passionate reflex of the amygdala is not where it's at. The addiction to one side, mm. happy without sad, kind without cruel, that's all fantasy land. 
The real world has things that you like and dislike. If you're seeing the dislike, look for the likes. If you're seeing the likes, look for the dislikes. Balance it out so you can be present. Otherwise, you're not. You got noise in the brain. Every human being has two sides. Yes. There is no nice. I'm not a nice person. I'm not a mean person. Those are personas. I'm a human being. You support my values. I'm nice as a pussycat. You challenge my values. I can be mean as a tiger. Every human being has got both sides. Many years ago, 37 years ago, I went to the biggest Oxford dictionary I could find. And I went through every possible human behavioral trait a human being could have listed in that dictionary in English. 4,628 traits I differentiated. I went through there and thought, who do I know that's the most extreme individual that plays that role out? And I put their initials out there. And then I, one by one, neurotically went through there for months and asked, where do I do that? When do I do that? Who do I do that to? And who perceives me that way? And I found I had every friggin' one of those inside me, every trait I displayed. So I don't need to get rid of any of my, and, and all those traits that I thought were all positive, I then looked for the downsides and all the traits I thought were negative, I looked for the upsides. Because if it really didn't serve humanity, it would have gone extinct. Mm. But if it's here, it must serve. So I want to find out it served. And I found out that I don't need to get rid of any part of myself to love myself. I don't need to get rid of any part. The moral hypocrisies that are taught to humanity that disempower people and make them search for fantasies, in my opinion, are the opiums of the masses that keep people stuck from doing something extraordinary with their lives. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And also it takes us away from the truth of what's going on and from connecting with each other. Because if we're putting each other on pedestals or we're pushing each other into the dirt, we're never looking at each other eye to eye. Yeah. So it's a great point. And I think a, a great call to action for any of us that have very pervasive recurring stories, either good or bad about a thing, person or place to question them and bring them to the center. I get that. You know, the gentleman sent me a nice letter, the guy that was hijacked. Mm-hmm. And with that letter was a thank you letter to the hijackers. Anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Mm. The executive center in the forebrain, the medial prefrontal cortex, does a series of actions. It, it's connected to V5, V6, associated area in the brain, and it's got inspired vision. When you're up there, when you're living by what's really truly important to you and doing what's really inspires you and what's priority to your life, visual inspiration comes. Strategic planning comes to mitigate risk, foresight, spontaneous action, spontaneous potentials in the brain go off when you do that. And you become present and become certain and become grateful and you become inspired by something and you love what you're doing and you're enthusiastically doing it. That's the place to live. And anywhere you can't say thank you or anytime you end up with a fantasy and then the life of the nightmare is going to come with it, it's just a matter of time, you're going to accumulate a story of unappreciation for life. And that's your baggage. That's stored in the subconscious mind and weighs you down. I'm interested in liberating people from that, asking questions that bring them them back into the center. And that's finding the downsides to the thing they're up. And I think that's what our our intuition is constantly trying to make the unconscious conscious to make us fully conscious. We're here to be fully conscious. Wait, let's say that again. Make the unconscious conscious to make us fully conscious. What does that mean? What that means is if we're in fact, you with the upsides with somebody and we're blind to the downsides, our intuition is whispering. I guarantee you every woman knows this. She sees a guy, she's infatuated. In the back of her head, she's going, too good to be true. Keep your eyes open. Watch out. This turned out before. Watch out for this. It's got these little whispers inside. And if it doesn't listen to it, you end up with all kinds of calamities. But if you listen to it, you're a little bit more cautious. You're a little bit more, let's not rush into this. 
you know, let's take our time. Let's date. Let's find out. Let's get to know each other, not rush in. And- let's not make out in the barn for two hours. Yeah, well, I, I was ready. I was in an impulse mode there. Yeah, you were 13, though, to to be fair. <laughs> yeah, the, the executive center doesn't get myelinated till around 25, 26. Yeah, exactly. You had a few years. A few years before that. I was a little irrational. I did some pretty cool irrational things. The same thing on when you resent something. Your intuition, when you go through and you have this guy that becomes a schmuck and it's now, your, your mind automatically with its intuition says, there's got to be a reason for this. There's got to be meaning behind this. What's the purpose of this? How is this? It's trying to whisper to you to bring you back in the center, mm. to try to bring homeostasis. I've studied physiology. I taught neurology. I've been studying this field for 40-something years. And one thing I'm certain about is our brain is doing everything it can to maintain homeostasis, regardless of the perturbed perceptions we, we live with. And it knows how to change the transmitters. It knows how to change the autonomics. It knows how to change symptoms to try to get us back to that center point for homeostasis and for maximum potential. So if we know how to listen to it intuitively, we go there quicker. If not, if we don't govern ourselves from within, we end up having to have governance from the outside. And so our friends, if we're cocky, you know, if we resent somebody and look down on them, we're too proud to admit we do that. We get cocky. Our friends come in and criticize us for our narcissistic behavior. And if we get humble and minimize ourselves to somebody we've got on the pedestal, our friends warn us and say, hey, man, get your stuff together. You're worth more than that. The, the world around you comes in to try to get you into the center. And if you still don't get it, tragedy and comedy comes in to get you to the center. Tragedy if you get really super cocky, comedy if if you really get down. So everything in the world is trying to get you back into authenticity. And if one really gets that and knows how to ask the right questions to equilibrate the mind, they can get there consciously and become self-governed and become more master of their destiny instead of victims of history. Yes. Beautifully said. I cannot expand upon that at all. I I do want to go into this values thing because this has been from all your teachings that I've studied prior to this interview, what has blown me away the most. Can you, first of all, define what a value is? Well, a value, the study of that is called axiology, the study of value and worth. So anything that you value and that's worth something to you that fulfills some void and need in your life is valuable. So it could be a relationship with money, it could be a job, it could be anything. But every human being has a unique fingerprint specific set of priorities, set of values, things that are most to least important in their life that that are unique to them based on the voids in their life. And, And the voids come from all the judgments in life. Every time you resent somebody and look down on them and are too proud to admit it, you've got to disown part. And every time you're humble and minimizing yourself to some of you exaggerate, you got to disown part. All those disowned parts and all those judgments feel empty. And so your mind is trying to bring homeostasis away from those imbalances and trying to give you fulfillment. Fulfillment means filling full the mind of what's perceiving something missing in your life. And whenever you're too proud or too humble to admit what you see in others inside you, you got missing parts. And you're not having reflective awareness. You're having deflective awareness. Reflective awareness is the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same. And you realize that what you see out there is you. They've shown in psychology, it's even written in biblical writings, it goes all the way back to the Egyptians, that whatever you see in somebody else that you resent, it's reminding you of something you feel ashamed of, and they're reminding you you want to avoid them because you want to avoid that part of you and become proud and cover that up. The same thing you when you admire things. You're too humble to admit it, but if you admire something in somebody, it's because you have that. You're just too humble to admit it. Oh, wow. So own it all own it all. You know, I'm not here to be a hero 
or get rid of my villain. I'm a hero villain. <laughs> I'm going to be liked and disliked no matter what I do in life. There's going to be somebody that likes what I'm doing, dislike what I'm doing. So going through life and finding out what you value most and prioritizing your life to live by that is what allows the executive center to get blood glucose and oxygen and become more objective and see both sides of things and be reasonable. But if you don't live by highest priorities and you keep living by duty, by the expectations of fitting into mommy, poppy, uh, preacher, teacher, Marais conventions and traditions of the external collective conscious world and don't allow yourself your individual expression and learning how to express that with service in sustainable, fair ways to other people, you're going to end up living in your lower values, being in your amygdala, avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, having subjective biases as a strategy for survival instead of an objective, reasonable path of service in the world. And so living by the highest values is one of the most magnificent things a human being could do to master their lives. So you say, and you alluded to this in that answer, that we often pick up values and hold the values of other people rather than discovering and honoring our own. I think that's what you're talking about when you're saying, you know, we're living in duty versus what we want. How do we figure out what values are ours, but what values are other people's? Very simple. The language speaks it. Think about a time, someone in your life, probably you got infatuated with a guy. Go back to that moment. Some guy that you were under an illusion of, you thought this is the one, this is a special guy or something. I'm assuming you had one of those, at least one. Yeah. Okay. Thinking of it. Now go to that moment. And can you see when you started dating that person that you sacrificed your normal routine and did things that were not your normal pattern in order to be in that relationship? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's a normal thing. Anytime you minimize yourself to them and fear the loss of them, which is the prime, one of the primary fears fear of loss of that which you seek, which is prey. That's a fear of starvation, really boil it down to it. You automatically will sacrifice what's important to you to not lose what's important to them because that's what their life is about. So anytime you infatuate some, you, you walk down the street or you go in a mall and you see somebody you think is more intelligent than you, you'll inject their values. You think they're more successful than you, they'll inject their values. You're more wealthy than you, more stable in their relationship, more socially connected, more physically fit or more spiritually aware. Anytime you minimize yourself and are too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you, you're going to inject their values. And the way you know you're injecting them, by the language you speak to yourself about. I should, I ought to, I'm supposed to, I got to, I have to, I must, I need to. That imperative language is not from their own highest values. That's an injected value of an outer authority. We've proven that for 40 years. So the moment you're talking, I should do that. You should, according to who? according to who? And we trace it back to mother, or we trace it back to teacher, we trace it back to rabbi, we trace it back to somebody you gave power to and authority to, that you subordinated to, that you fear that. In fact, that's where shame comes. Shame and guilt comes from the injected values and trying to live in their values, and you can't. So you, in your own value system, you don't judge yourself. You think you made a mistake whenever you compare your actions to somebody else's values, and you think somebody else made a mistake when you compare their actions to your values. Hmm. But we're not here to compare ourselves with other people. They have a different set of values. They live according to theirs. When you finally realize that you're not here to live in their shadows or live, you know, superordinate looking down on people or subordinate looking up at people, but be ordinate and have reflective awareness and love people for who they are, for their unique set of values and communicate effectively what you value in terms of what they value, which is an art. And you got the whole world now. You got the world, you have less noise in the brain. 
You don't need to fix anybody. You probably had a relationship also where you felt that this is not working. You gave them the ultimatum. It's either my way or the highway, baby. And they can't. That's not their values. So anytime we go uh, puff ourselves up with narcissistic behaviors of pride or put ourselves down with altruistic behaviors of shame, we're automatically disempowering ourselves, putting noise in the brain, and we're going to be creating a futility. And you'll either hear yourself saying you should or I should. And both of those are signs that we're not living authentically, not having reflective awareness, not objective, living in our executive center. And it's a symptom of not living by highest priority in life, guaranteed. When we are highly infatuated with somebody, we fear their loss. There's no resilience. We're highly resentful. We fear their gain. So the external world runs our lives. When we're neutral, we don't fear gain or loss. We completely can mi migrate in and out without having those attachments, as the Buddha says. So I know you have this amazing values quiz because I took it. It was super helpful. But can you give, I mean, I highly recommend people go there and, and take it for themselves, but can you give a little bit of an overview on how people can start to figure out what they truly value in life and how to use that to frame their life? Yeah. I started studying values 40 something years, 44 years ago. And I watched people tell me idealism, social idealism, peace, honor, truth. I just want to vomit sometimes when I hear people say <laughs> such bull, you know, it's just, I go, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so I, I said, I'm not interested in any of that. Those are social idealisms. Those are moral hypocrisies. I'm not interested in those, those fantasies. I'm interested in what your life demonstrates. Because every decision you make based on what you believe will give you the greatest advantage or disadvantage at any moment. What does your life demonstrate? So I look at how do you fill your space? Because even a baby in a crib, if you put something in it, it doesn't want, it will kick and scream and push it out. But if you put it in there and it wants it, it'll stick it in its mouth and hold on to it and keep it there. So anything that's proximal is things that are valuable to you. Anything you push distally is something you don't want. It's, it's not important to you. So look at how you fill your space and what do you fill your space with? My computer's in front of me pretty well every day, all day long. And this is my vehicle for teaching and my vehicle for researching and writing. So if I look at what I keep in my space, it reveals what's the dominant use of that item. It tells you what's valuable to you, teach, research, and write. So I look at what you fill your space with. I look at how you spend your time. You make time, find time, and spend time on things that are really valuable. And you, don't, you run out of time. I have people that ask me if I want to do this and this. I go, uh, no, I, I probably could have time for it, but I'd rather be reading a book. So I say, thank you, but no thank you, because it's not important to me. So you make time for things that are important to you. Even when you say, well, I've got to go to work. No, there's something in that work that is valuable to you. Maybe it's financial security. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're that you don't see an alternative way to get financial security in that. And you're really after financial security, even though you may not like that job, you don't see alternatives that are greater or you would be doing them. Could I ask you a question on that real quick? Because my values came out in a way that didn't shock me because it makes sense. Like, my dreams, like I really want to sing more, right? Like I'm a singer songwriter, I'm a musician, but I've consistently been asking myself questions over the past few months. I'm like, if you really want to sing more, why aren't you prioritizing that more in your life? And when I took the values quiz, I found out that like there were two that had the exact same percentage. One was like family and relationships and friendships. So like interpersonal connection, which makes sense because I love podcasting, I produce podcasts, all that stuff. But the other one was, success and and it seemed like feeling like important or or clout or security I don't know if that would be like a actual value but it was success like it was I, I guess if I had to qualify it it would be work and the music was like 18 percent 
And these other ones were 21%. So I think that what I've been doing in my head is making one thing work, but music to me isn't work. So it's not as high up on the priorities list. So is there a way to combine those two values? Like to change my mind to think music is work, Lauren. Stop thinking that success, the only way to get success is to have a job job. Music can be your job job. Well, first, first you go through the value determination to find out what's top. Yeah. And then you go and ask, what are the action steps in the music industry that if I do these action steps, I will max master and maximize my potential on that. And then take those action steps and ask how specifically is doing these actions going to help me fulfill what my life demonstrates is truly the top value. Right. And if you make links to the top value, you increase the probability. Every new link, neuroplastically, within 200 milliseconds, spines are growing on dendrites. You're neuroplastically modeling the brain by heavy and rules by asking a question, how specifically is doing the action steps proven in the music industry to achieve helping me fulfill what is absolutely most meaningful to me? And from what I could tell, when you're doing music, you're touching people's lives. But when you're doing podcasts, you're touching people's lives. And the impact on touching people's lives is probably very high in value. Yeah, that's like the, well, I think human connection is like my most important thing is just, I That's the one that, see, by going on and doing the podcast, you're getting, a, you're getting feedback very quickly. Yeah. With the, doing a piece of music, it may take months. You got immediate feedback right away. I'm changing lives. I'm doing this. I'm making a difference. People are impacted. Thank you. Blog, blogs, you know. So that's probably why that's easier to achieve one of those values, right? Unless you can communicate that, but you can link them. You can make it all of a sudden. You start bringing your music onto the podcast before and after. You start doing a presentation and you're singing before you come on. That's your opening. Yeah. You can start linking those together, and then all of a sudden you probably are going to be demanded more to sing by doing the podcast. So you win because they're not disconnected. Right. Anytime you have values that are pretty close to each other. And you try to do one without the other and multitask, you'd scatter it. But if you super task and link those, how is doing this help that? How is doing this help that? Your brain now creates ways where you can get them all done. Yeah. And if you delegate some of the subcomponents, you can get them all done now. Well, that's exactly it. And, and I'm really happy you said that because that's what I've been thinking about lately. It's like, maybe it's because I was like, do I even want to do music? What's happening with me? And I think it's exactly what you said. It's like I've been scattering my energy so much that I'm I'm tapped and like the other things that are higher value for me are taking over. But if I could bring music into one of the things that I already value and I'm getting the value back from, that way I get to have everything, but just in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I could easily show you how to do it. It's, it's simply asking questions and making links in the brain. It's not that difficult. It's not rocket science. Oh, my gosh. But the, the third thing, yeah. the third thing is what, you, what you're energized by, because anytime you're doing something that's high in your values, your energy goes up. Right. Anytime you're doing something low in your values, your energy goes down. I'm a pretty energetic guy. You probably could pick it up by now. Yeah. You're very energetic. I, I, I do 18 hour, 20 hour days. You know, that's, that's, I did that. I slept four hours a day for 35 years. That's it. And kept an intense schedule. Since I'm 65 or whatever, I've, I've done a little bit more sleeping. I can't believe you're 65, by the way. You look like 30, 40 years younger than that. Yeah, I'm going on I'm going on 68. I'll be 68 this year. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. I told my daughter at 50 that I'm reversing back. So now my oldest daughter is older than me by five years. I'm going on 32. She's 37. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, but you look at how what, what energizes you. Yeah. You look at what energizes you because what, whatever's... When, when you're doing something that's high in your value, your energy goes up. When you're doing something low in your value, oh, 
So true. And when you're the next one is what you spend your money on. Your hierarchy of values dictate your financial destiny. I, I save a lot, invest a lot. That's why I became fortunate. You know, I, I, I didn't buy immediate gratifying goods and collect a bunch of stuff and fill up a house full of crap. I bought assets and I became wealthy because I valued that because I knew that if I didn't do that, I'll be working as a slave for money all my life. If I do that, it'll work for me as a master. So I look at how I, you spend your money and your hierarchy of values is shown there. Then you look at where you're most organized and ordered. Then you look at where you're most disciplined and reliable. You can count on me to be teaching. You can't count on me to cook. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I haven't driven a car in 32 years. I don't do anything but teach, research, and write. I'm useless. Even lovemaking, I, I tell my girlfriend, so look, if I could get Hugh Jackman to take care of that part and I could delegate that, would you still love me? She said, I'd love you even more, baby. <laughs> you know? That'd be so, a great scam. So I delegate. I delegate all lower priority things because all of those things lower values. They devalue you. Anytime you do lower value things, you devalue yourself. So why bother doing it? Get to the highest priorities and stick to them. That's the key in life. Then what I look at is I look at what you think about, what are you visualizing, and what are you internally dialoguing yourself about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true. I said to myself since I was 17, when I met Paul Bright, that I would travel the world, step foot in every country in the world, and uh, teach. That's what my dream was. I live on a ship called the world. I travel all over the world. I teach around the world, because that was my dream. And you, in, in the thing that you actually think about, visualize and affirm inside your head that you actually get done and actually make happen, those are things that are valuable to you. You don't stop on those things. And then you look at what do you bring conversations to the most. People come up to you, how's your kids? How's your golf game? How's your business? How's your finances? How's this? They always want to talk about what's important to them. What do you want to talk about most? The next one is what inspires you and brings tears to your eyes? I would be willing to bet. I don't know enough. We just met today, but I'd be willing to bet that you've had tears not only from singing, but you've had tears also from making a difference in people's lives on this podcast. Oh, yeah. I bet you've had that. That's like the most. And I think, too, like. Did you hear what you just said? Did you just hear what you said? What? That's like the most. Yeah. That's why you're doing it. Yeah, I do. I, I really I've related to a lot of the things that you've said, too, where it's just I want to make people know they matter. You know, that's why I do this. Say, say that again. Say that again, because that'll bring a tear to your eye. I, I want people to know that they matter. That's it. Because you matter and you want them to know how meaningful that is. That's the same for me. Yeah. I want people to know how magnificent they are because they sometimes don't see it. Yeah, often. The magnificence of who you truly are is far greater than any fantasies you impose on yourself. And so there's your core reason. That's what's deep inside. And you do that when you're doing music and you do that when you're up on that podcast because you you can see that you're making a difference because you can get the feedback immediately. And that's one of the reasons why you're doing it, which is magnificent. And I think that's where the heart is. If you're not living by your heart, you're missing out on life. You're, you're undergoing entropy and breaking down and aging. It's the timeless mind ages body that Deepak said it really is allowing you to be fulfilled in life. So then I look at where you're inspired. Then I look at what are the goals that you have that are that are absolutely long-term goals that you persist and consistently go on it. Nobody has to remind you to do that you're achieving. And what do you want to study, read about, learn about, listen to? What do you absolutely want to watch on YouTube? What do you want to fill your mind and learn? All of those will give you a very clear pattern. If you answer those honestly, the top three answers to those questions and look at what repeated most, second most, and third most, it'll point you. I've been doing this for years, decades. And I, at the end, when they do it accurately, I ask him, how many of you right now feel that your life and, and identity revolves around that top one? 
usually a tear in their eye and they all put their hands up. And I said, how many of you feel like the purpose you're on this planet for revolves around that top one? The hands go up. How many of you feel like that's where you're most skilled and most certain and most knowledgeable? The hands go up. That's why every seminar I talk about, I talk about values. But most people think of values, they think, well, what I should do, mm -hmm. what I'm supposed to do, what I got to do, here's how to live. Every human being deserves to be unique. And there's no value system that everybody's supposed to follow. There's an art and science on how to communicate what you really value in terms of other people's values with respect. And that levels the playing field and creates a sustainable fair exchange with people, which maximizes potential on the planet. You don't need to force totalitarian, authoritarian ideas. This is how you're supposed to believe. We're seeing the repercussion of that right now in history. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. But equity theory, which is a basic theory in psychology, knows that we innately want fair exchange. And you can never have fair exchange when you're talking down or talking up. You have alternating monologue instead of true dialogue. Dialogue is what opens the heart and allows caring. Not careful, not careless, but caring. That's what keeps the rings on the finger. Well, with that, I, I mean, I could talk to you for 14 hours, but we are a little over now. So I just want to thank you so much. You've definitely have changed my life and my perspective. I'm going to take that values quiz one more time because you do recommend to take it twice. And it's so helpful, too, for you listening, because you give a pie chart of how it all lays out. It's all color coded. You get to write this paragraph about where you are in your life, what you want, what your obstacles are. So it's a great way to kind of keep track and make sure you're staying true to who you are. And I'm so grateful for you, Dr. Martini, And thank you, my Paisan, for coming on this show and sharing so much of yourself and your wisdom. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for the questions. Thanks for letting us go over because I think the last few minutes was also meaningful. So thank you. So meaningful. Appreciate the opportunity. So grateful for you. We're on the same path of making a difference and doing something meaningful because I, I loved it. When I saw your tears in your eye, I go, there's something right there. That's the core of what she's dedicated to. Yeah, it is. It's true. And that's the through line for everything. And that's the purpose. You know, that's how you live your purpose is by having that through line part of everything you do. That's the purpose. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be on your show. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to my guest, Dr. John Demartini. For more info on Dr. Demartini, follow him at Dr. John Demartini on Instagram. And if you're interested in taking the value assessment that I took or any of his online courses and events, check out his website, drdemartini.com. I highly, highly, highly recommend that value assessment. It is so clarifying and helpful. Thank you so much to Unleash producer Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Dr. Demartini at Dr. John Demartini so he can share too. My wish for you this week is that you make it your mission to find out what values you stand by and for and see what parts of your life are out of alignment. Living authentically is a foundation to any and all of your creative pursuits. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.